and welcome to Out of Left Field, presented by Farm Bureau. Bulldogs had a big weekend this past weekend, winning two of three at home against Tulane. They win last night against Southern Miss and stayed off to that really good start here in 2021. I'm Bart Gregory, along with Charlie Winfield. We're brought to you by Farm Bureau. Farm Bureau, go with the home team. They've got agents in every county in the state of Mississippi. They've got great rates. They've got great customer service. I was texting with my agent just the other night, and we were just talking about different things. Charlie, whether it's home, whether it's life, whether it's car, they've got the best rates that you can possibly have, but they also have the great service. And you will see those agents every day, whether you're picking up your kids in the carpool line or at church on Sunday. Farm Bureau, go with the home team. Check them out at favorites.com. Charlie, I guess before we get going, Let's take a look back at last weekend. You know, we got together for Sunday coffee. We talked about the first two days of the series. Of course, the walk-off win, the grand slam by Hancock on Saturday, and then stayed able to walk it off again on Sunday. Tanner Allen with a two-run single in the ninth inning. And here's the thing that really stands out to me about you know why games like that are important, especially early in the season, is because sometimes when teams get down and in the ninth inning, they don't have the confidence to try to come back. And I know, you know, it's 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 a mindset, essentially. And you talk to people who are winners and have won big in college sports, whether it be football, baseball, basketball, whatever. The teams that have had the great success are the ones that said, you know what, even though we were down, we never thought we were out. And that's the way this team was last weekend where, yeah, you may have been down in the ninth inning, but you didn't feel like you were out and able to kind of put some bats together. The thing that impressed me most perhaps was the fact that not only were you down, you had a team that was kind of basically rubbing your nose in it. You know, they were giving it right to you. They were chirping at you across the field. They were making gestures. They were. Did you have a problem with it? Yes, but. It's just not my style of baseball. I am not at all against hard-nosed play. I liked what Tulane did between the lines. I liked the way they played with an edge. I just could do with a little less of the antics. I'm not getting mad at a guy if he makes a big play, clapping, pointing at the dugout. That's not what I'm talking about. I am getting mad at a guy who makes a big play, claps, looks at the opposing dugout, shares it with them. I, I just... I just am not a fan of that personally. Well, it's kind of like we talked about Sundays. You know, 70% of people kind of like the old school of baseball and where you don't do that. There's, you know, there are some coaches out there that say, hey, this is just a part of the game and we're going to do it. And Well, but even within that realm, even within the group of people who say, okay, we're going to do it, I thought they were extraordinary. I thought they stood out even within that class. But here's the thing you like. You're dealing with somebody giving you the trash talk, and it's the old saying – you know, how do you deal with a bully, punch him in the nose? You certainly don't want to compare Tulane to a bully. But there is some value in when somebody's giving it to you, just be better. And we made plays when we had to make them. And ultimately, what's the old saying? He who talks last talks loudest or something to that effect. And that's what we did. Able to walk it off back-to-back days. And I think, you know, what's the premise of doing that? And you see it some even has trickled down to 
you know, little leagues. I mean, I saw a nine-year-old team last year do the same exact thing, the way that the chanting and in your face, and it's uh, – I just thought some of those guys might have grown out of it by now. That's my only thing. I get it. You thought the, 10 years, 10 years you'd get out of it. What's the premise is to kind of get under the skin and to see if someone can play when they're uncomfortable. And, and they I, did. They got under our skin. And I, and I thought we played when we were uncomfortable late in the game, and that was the big key. Well, and the beauty of it, too, is if you go back, I think all these things give you something that you – you can take with you right so we now know that and other teams know that if you're going to try that we're fine our players know it in their head that they're fine they know they can rise above it the second thing though is boy Luke Hancock and Tanner Allen that is an experience they had walking off those games that you carry with you and it matters it is different hitting in the bottom of the first and the bottom of the ninth it takes a special kind of guy to be able to do what Tanner Allen did. And knowing in your head, I don't care how much confidence you have, there is a big, big importance to having been there, having done it. That's an experience you bottle up and take with you. And next time that he's up in a big situation, it's it's there. That's a life experience. That's a notch in the belt, and it's going to carry with him. I would love to do an experiment with guys that – maybe in their freshman year, if if they're at the plate in the ninth inning and they've got a three-ball, two-strike count, you're one pitch away from walking, you're one pitch away from swinging the bat and getting the game-winning base hit, and how the mentality changes from your freshman year to your junior year. You know what I'm saying? Okay, I'm, I'm looking for a pitch to hit. I'm willing to let that ball go. Am I willing to do a little bit too much? That's the whole thing, and we say that every week about that quote-unquote doing too much. Sometimes you try to swing and overswing and swing at balls that are out of the zone, especially early in your career. Well, and if Tanner Allen is up there trying to be Luke Hancock and put one out into the, to the outfield seats in right field, we lose that game. You know, you saw not only some mental toughness of being able to hit in that situation, but what you saw was some discipline. You saw a guy willing to take the pitch the other way. That's one of the big things with me when you start looking at guys in the major leagues. I still believe it is winning baseball. It may not over the course of a year be great drafting baseball because when you start to get drafted, what are people looking at? Home run numbers, power numbers. In college baseball, it is a winning philosophy to take a pitch on the outside part of the plate and hit it the other way. One of the things we said coming into this season was going to be the depth, especially in pitching that teams would have. We used our 21st pitcher last night, and he looked daggum good last night. Johnson Johnson came in throwing mid-90s, easy motion, struck out six, and, man, I'm talking about he was a dog. When have you ever seen the 21st guy on the roster come in and do that against the – look, that's a quality opponent. Exactly. And so you look back at this past weekend when you play really your first three-game series against the team – and even Tulane was running new guy after new guy after new guy. And even the other night, you know, Charlie, we were talking about you know, Stone Simmons. I mean, he was the 19th guy we used, and he was really good out of the pen on Saturday. And he was valuable. It, it's really interesting because a lot of times when you're down 5-3, you're down 4-2, you're in those spots in a ball game and somebody comes in, and you've almost got your mindset as a fan that this is mop-up duty. We're not going to blow a great arm here. Those innings matter. And that performance mattered. If he gives up a run there, it's a different ball game, and we don't win. I've always said that's one of the toughest things for a pitcher to do is to come in in a deficit and try to hold it where it is. Because from a mental standpoint, you really haven't got a whole lot to hold on to. You know what I'm saying? You're not working with a lead. 
you don't have anything that you're you're competing against other than yourself. You're just trying to, to minimize what the other team is doing. And we were able to come through that and get some good innings. But you look at the other hand of the number of guys we used on the weekend, we had three starts from our starters and none got to the fifth inning. None. And you kind of wonder if you don't have that depth. I'm saying in the Sunday game, if you don't have the depth that you have in the bullpen two years ago, you try Fristo back out there in the fifth because you really don't know what you got in the pen on a Sunday. Now you have the luxury of going to the pen early. And often if you need to. Here's what's interesting, too. We spend all this time. I was looking at stats this morning, and we spent all this time getting together and talking about who's going to do what and what your rotation is going to be. As we sit here today, Houston Harding has more innings pitched than anybody on this team. In fact, he has two and a third more innings pitched than the second-place guy in Christian McLeod. It's, we talk all the time. You can talk about it, but somebody's got to go do it. And you know what? You've gotten good pitching out of Houston Harding. His he was, changeup was lethal last yeah, night. Yeah, it was really good last night. And, you know, he went five innings in the game last night, gave up a run on two hits. He struck out nine. He walked one. How about the, the team striking out 20 last night? But more importantly than that, you know, walked just three. So we did a great job. You know, so 20 of your 27 outs in the game last night against Southern Miss – and I know Southern Miss has really struggled offensively. And I think t- here's the thing. That win last night I think is going to turn into something bigger late in the year because Southern Miss is going to get better. Their offense, they've got, had three freshmen in the lineup last night. Their weekend staff is pretty good. They're going to be a very good team. That's going to be a good RPI win for you later in the year. And then last night, you know, just the ability to jump out early. We scored a run in the bottom of the first. And your Southern Miss tied it with a run in the top of the third. We got a run back. We took that lead right back. Scored two in the fifth. It felt like we had a chance to expand the lead, especially late in the game. But nonetheless, you win it four to one over Southern Miss. We're now six and two. They dropped to four and four. You know, Charlie, you just can't discount. And we've talked about it off the air a good bit. I know league play is going to be so big this year when you're going to have good team after good team after good team hovering around 500. And, Charlie, I know we've got to hurry before we get to break, but last night is just an emphasis of how big non-conference games are going to be all season long in college baseball. We saw how important it was in 2019 where we ran through the non-conference schedule, what, with one loss? Yep. And that really made a difference in our seeding and that type thing. This year, though, I think it's going to be important for a different reason. I think there's going to be a lot of teams in the SEC sitting around that 500 mark, and you have to start to say who's going to host, who isn't, who's a national seed, who isn't. And I think a lot of that is going to have to do with how do you perform against the Tulane's, Florida Atlantic, Central Florida's of the world. Kent State's. Yeah, look, that's going to be a good team. We'll We'll, talk about them, but they're good. Absolutely. We'll talk about Kent State later in the show. But first, when we come back, we'll talk to the former head coach at Mississippi State. Ron Polk is going to come into the studio and join us, and we'll talk about about a lot of different things. We're going to ask him some crazy questions, I think. I enjoy having Coach Polk around the office. But, of course, we're brought to you by – Farm Bureau, go with the home team. Farm Bureau, you have agents in every county and state of Mississippi. The best service that you can possibly want out of an insurance company. Farm Bureau, go with the home team. Back with a conversation with Ron Polk right after this.
Well, it's time for our guest line segment brought to you each week by our friends at Heartland Catfish. Heartland, located in the Mississippi Delta in Itabina, just on the other side of Greenwood. Heartland Catfish, if you're looking for, you know, go to the grocer. You can look at great restaurants around the southeast. Last week we talked about Jerry's down in Florence where they carry the Heartland Catfish. And uh, joining us now, the former coach at Mississippi State, now special assistant to the athletic director, and he makes sure we all know it. And that's Coach Ron Polk joins us. Coach, are you a big catfish guy? You like I catfish? I love catfish. I you love, love catfish. Well, the best catfish you can possibly eat is it from Heartland Catfish in Itabina, Mississippi. You're going to travel through that area tonight. You've got well, to speak in the, in the Delta tonight. Yeah, I'm heading to uh, Cleveland, Mississippi tonight to speak at Bayou Academy. Bayou Academy. Bayou Academy. Okay. Uh, you talk about going to Bayou tonight, and you – you speak at so many of these things, and I, I was around a bunch of kids last night from from Simpson, and they were talking about, "Hey, there's Coach Polk. He came and spoke to us a few weeks ago." And so you're always in your car. You were at the ball game last night at the Southern Miss game. So before we start talking about baseball, I mean, when you get in your car, what do you, what are you listening to? I was thinking about that last night driving back. I'm listening to a radio station out of Dallas, and I say, you know what? What's Coach Polk listening to right now? Is it a is it an audio book? Are you listening to the radio? Is it gospel music? I mean, what 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 are you listening to when you when you're all over the road all the it's time? It's all Fox News, day in and day out, on the road all the time. Cigar going, Fox News, and enjoying my drive. Yeah. Now I thought you were against technology, so you're listening to XM Radio. I have Sirius. Do you really? I do. Well, that's that's pretty awesome. So anyway, well, that's that's, that's good. A great, that's a great first question. Yes. No, I do a lot of. Uh, <clears throat> A lot of banquets, high school, junior college, college. Normally, I do 40, 45 in the month of January and February to the point I'm on the road almost every night and then get back for practice at UAB when I was there. And uh, nine, uh, one or two o'clock in the morning, uh, a little tired, but uh, enjoy the kids, uh, parents uh, v- visiting with the coaches, and I don't charge anybody anything to speak, no gas, no fee. I'm just an all-around nice guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I'm going to ask you a That's baseball. debatable, but go ahead. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to ask you a, kind of a baseball question. I was sitting by you at one of the games this weekend. There's a ground ball hit, and you make the comment, I don't like seeing that guy field that ground ball with two hands. I want to see him use one hand. And I think back to growing up, what do you always hear at the Little League fields? You know, field it in the middle of your body, two hands, funnel it in and those type things. And now we hear guys talk about they want to – use the glove side and kind of stay free and loose. What changed? Well, nothing's changed. I, I think I was talking about a run-through play. Technically, if a boy goes right or left, which means if he's right-handed, he's going backhand or forehand, we always want one hand. You can reach out farther in front of you and also extend farther. And on run-through plays where you're uh, like in Cameron James' case, our shortstop is a 6'2", six, 6'2 two, six, two shortstop. So, I mean, he's got to lower his center of gravity, but sometimes he goes with two hands and he gets somewhat in between hop because he doesn't have his arm out far enough. Uh, just like a guy jumping to, to take a home run away from someone and you go up one hand. Uh, I work with the outfielders a lot at, at the University of Alabama, Birmingham, and I had them all just catch every pop-up, every fly ball one hand because sometimes you get two hands in there. Now, if there's a tag situation, I want that bare hand close to the glove. But uh, the ball, the glove is designed to catch a ball. The other bare hand has no purpose whatsoever. But in Little League and Babe Ruth and Daddy Pitch, you catch with two hands because they're seven, eight, and nine years old, and the ball's going to pop out of their glove. But in our level, uh, the glove is so big, especially for outfielders, it's like a, 
I mean, it's, it's an easy catch with one hand. So when, along those lines, when, when you're talking to a kid and you're trying to figure out when to start you know, rounding off ground balls as a shortstop and try to be more aggressive, what ages are you looking at to try to do that? I know you talk about you know, you know, 10 years old, 11 years old. Are you looking at 13, 14, 15 when you try to start things like that? You start at 9 or 10 years old. I mean, if he's an infielder, if it's a slow hit ball, he's, he's running hard. You know, you can go two hands down, but you lose your balance if you do that. You've got to take an extra step. We always, I always start one hand. But the main thing is to get on glove side. Uh, you know, they get on the other side. Like Cameron occasionally will get caught in between on a run through or on the wrong side, and he can't use his glove. So he goes two hands, and all of a sudden he has a hard time getting close to the ball, the, the level of the ball, and try to feel the ball underneath. Uh, nothing should get under the glove, especially if there's a runner at second base. But basically it's one hand, and I, I know I go against all the little league coaches thinking i got to teach my boys to catch two hands. Yes, I think at the young level, it doesn't hurt to use two hands, but at the level that we work with the college-age kids, it's one hand. Okay, along those lines, and here, here's one thing that I've really always wanted to ask you. Last year, we had Dell Unser on our show, and he was talking about learning a lot from Paul Gregory and Tom to RMI, and then when he got to the big leagues, you know, Ted Williams and a lot of his coaches there. You wrote a book, and of course, it's you know, much talked about, the book of, you know, of college baseball, and let me ask you this question. Where did you learn baseball? I mean, where did you, who were who were the influences for you? Was it a little league coach? Was it a college coach? A high school coach? I mean, where did you just sit down one night beside your typewriter and say, you know what, I'm going to write a book? I mean, where did your thoughts and philosophies of baseball, where do they originate from? Well, I grew up in Phoenix, Arizona. Uh, you don't get any rain out there. You're outside all the time. And my dad was a, a semi-pro baseball player, and me and my brother Bob used to play at all the – the little tight games all the time in practice, and Dad always took us out to hit and field ground balls and all that. That's where it all started. And then I played at high school there and, and uh, Grand Canyon University and uh, never coached a high school game. I coached 54 years of college baseball and just happened to be in the right place at the right time. And, and then the book started in Georgia Southern 1972, I just felt like I needed to put some things together. I was so tired of running off stencils and things for my players, you know, every bunt defense and first and third and signals and all that. I said, why don't I put in a book just like they have an English book in class, they have a geography book in class, why can't they have a baseball book so they can study? I can give them assignments the night before. It's like another coach. I don't have to spend a valuable practice time going over every detail. More and more in professional baseball we're seeing international players you've actually spent some time working with international guys haven't you where where do you see the direction that baseball is going internationally well last report we got charlie 44 percent of all the players in professional ball at the low a all the way up to the big leagues and now hispanic i do uh, clinics for score international down dominican every year dominican republic 12 years been to cuba three times nicaragua aruba i've been in a lot of latin american countries and uh, they have an edge on us because their kids don't have any distractions for the most part. They don't have cell phones. They don't have video games. In Dominican, they don't have electricity in the house. They have no water, and they're outside all the time playing, and that's why they get very good. 
But uh, I enjoy going down to Dominican because it's a country of 11 million people. And right now, all 30 big league clubs have academies down there working with 200 to 250, 15, 16 year olders, developing them. And if they get good enough, they sign them and send them <clears throat> to spring training. You know, poverty is extreme down there, and the kids are outside. They have a great time, and they got good coaches down there. The worst field conditions you can imagine, especially out in the sugarcane villages. But they don't uh, speak any English, the Dominicans. So if they did, they'd be in every college in America right now. We heard a story last year about when you were at Georgia Southern that Ted Turner was really thinking about naming you the manager of the Atlanta Braves. How close were you to becoming the manager of the Atlanta Braves back in the 1970s? Went to the College World Series in 1973. I was 28 years old, okay, still a young buck coach. And there was a contact made, I don't know, by Ted Turner, his secretary or something. I don't know. But I do remember getting a call from some official in the Atlanta Braves organization wanting to know if I was happy at Georgia Southern. I said, well, I'm teaching five classes. I have no assistant coach. I have to take care of the field. I can do all the promotions, all the travel, everything. Uh, I'm happy, but at the same time, what, what, what are you interested in? Well, we're just making a contact with you. Somebody asked me to do it and find out if you're happy at Georgia Sutton. I said, I'm very happy. And that was the, that was the extent of it. Never talked to Ted Turner. I was only 28 years old. My gosh. Oh, okay. So, so you, you didn't, you didn't meet him up in, you know, somewhere in Atlanta and y'all try, try no, to hash out the contract. No, no. I mean, I came back and Florida state flew me in and then Baylor flew me in trying to see if I'd be interested in, in uh, coaching at Baylor or Florida state. And uh, just all this didn't work out. And I just stayed at Georgia Southern and, Went down to Miami and worked with Ron Fraser, and then Mississippi State picked me up, and that's the end of the story. Did you ever have a desire to get into pro ball? Not real well, not really. See, for the for the most part, it's changing a lot now because of the analytics. There was a rule always, basically, uh, pro baseball did not want to bring in college coaches to to manage or coach in the minors or the big leagues. They always felt unless you played professional baseball. Uh, you're not a, you're not capable of, of coaching at that level. Well, I disagree 100%. Some of our best coaches who write the books and do all the, all the, the periodicals are, are college coaches. And uh, But uh, they've changed it. In fact, uh, Chris Young, a pitcher at Mississippi State, became the pitching coach. He never played much pro ball. And Darren Johnson, I mean, no, uh, who is the coach here, pitching coach here for John Cohen, who's the pitching coach of the Twins right now? Wes Johnson. Yeah, Wes. I mean, he's. I mean, now they're going into college mainly for the pitching guys. Yeah. Uh, why? Because of analytics. That's why. But uh, so it used to be a rule. Like uh, somebody told me one time many years ago, Buck Showalter would never be a good league, big league manager because he never played in the big leagues. And I said, why? He said, well, he didn't play in the big leagues. I said, what does that? What difference does that make? How close did he come to being on your staff? Well, he wanted to be a graduate assistant, and then the Yankees offered him opportunity when he got released. He was in AAA baseball to, to manage the Fort Lauderdale Yankees down in the Florida State League, so he had to change his mind. Talking with Coach Ron Polk, we'll come back and we'll talk further right after this. This interview brought to you by Heartland Catfish. You're listening to Out of Left Field, presented by Farm Bureau. Welcome back to Out of Left Field, presented by Farm Bureau. We're talking with Coach Ron Polk, and we're brought to you by Country Pleasing Sausage, Country Pleasing, down on Highway 49 in Florence. Just the best 
You you like sausage, Coach? Yeah, but I'm going to ask you out in left field. Why is it out in right field? Are you discriminating against right fielders? Yes, we are. We we are we we're we're coming from the, we're coming from the left field. I mean, it's the left field lounge. Charlie and I used to spend a lot of time out in the left field lounge. Charlie still does. I do as well, and so we really didn't put a whole lot of thought okay, into I'm, it. I'm, I'm sorry to break up your interview, but I just no, it's I, you okay. Said left field. I said, what's wrong with right field? Well, no. nothing was wrong with right field. Sometimes you put your weakest player in right field. No, no, no. You <laughs> put your best player in right field because there's more right-handed hitters and the ball comes off the bat. Plus, he has to have the best arm because there's more plays, long-distance throws to third. Well, it, but two, <laughs> we're, we're talking about Little League. Little League. I know you stick him <laughs> in right field and the ball finds him real quick. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> hurry. Uh, Coach, you mentioned one of our players in talking about fielding. I want to ask you a hitting question. I was looking at some stats today. And you had mentioned Cameron James. I see that he doesn't have a walk on the season. He struck out eight times. And I don't know what got me to looking at this, but I just seemed to think that he was swinging a lot of pitches early. In fact, I went back and looked. He's averaging about three pitches per at bat. You look at a guy like Hancock, it's over four. Does that number mean anything to you when you see a guy that's seeing three pitches or fewer in at bat? I'd like for, you know, again, I don't coach Cameron. We have such a great coaching staff at Mississippi State, but he does swing a lot of breaking balls early, and he strikes out a lot of breaking balls. And so he's probably going to have to learn, you know, right now until he gets a feel for it, he's going to have to start taking breaking balls, especially early in the count. But uh, you like to have uh, the same number of walks as as strikeouts. Now, the power hitters are not going to be the case. You'll have more strikeouts. And Cameron is somewhat of a power hitter. I mean, he's gotten bigger and stronger. But, uh, yeah, he's going to have to learn. He'll be coming up to the Cape Cod with me this summer, and we'll talk a lot about it. As I'm sure the coaches have talked about it at Mississippi State. He's got to be a little bit more selective. But he's a very aggressive hitter. Uh, and it's so I don't, you don't want to take that away from him. But he's got to be sure – uh, he understands what the strike zone's all about, and he wants to get to three one two zero counts. If you don't get to three one two on two zero counts, your batting average is going to suffer. Talk about that. As far as going to the Cape, when when you get a guy in the Cape in the summer, do you coach a guy differently now offensively than you used to? Because the game has changed so much now from analytics, and you know, big league clubs are looking for you know, for more of the home run. You, you rarely see that guy moving the runner from second to third with that ground ball on the right side. It has has coaching hitters changed at, say, the summer league schedule? Well, one of the first times we meet with a ball club, we tell them that uh, they're all pretty good. All the guys that come to the Cape are the best freshmen and sophomores in the country, and we're not about to change anything with them right off the bat. If they're having a problem, we're here. Because I don't want to ever get, uh, let's say, a Cameron James up there and make an adjustment, and uh, he's, he stuff, suffers, and the coaches back at Mississippi State well, we sent you a great hitter, and all of a sudden, you know, he's, he's batting left-handed. He always hit right-handed for us. <laughs> and so we try not to make changes very much because they come from good schools for the most part up in the Cape. These are the high draft, potential high draft picks. And, uh, but they'll, uh, they'll struggle, struggle up there because of three, three reasons, uh, wooden bats, power arms, even in the bullpen, and very poor lights. So the, the games there are two hours and 10, 2, 15. So you've got to be more move the runner, bunt a little bit more in the Cape because the games are 3, 2, 2, 1, 4, 3, uh, as against what they are now in college baseball. So it's a different environment. You mentioned the Cape. That's a wood bat league. Do you like seeing younger hitters hit from time to time using wooden bats? Well, I hate for them to change too much, especially during the season, because if you practice with a wooden bat, then you put an aluminum bat in your hand. It's a different feel. So I think in the fall, before games actually start, to, to see how you how you make adjustments with a little heavier bat and a, a smaller sweet spot. 
But a lot of college hitters will will practice in the fall and even play scrimmage games when they don't count with a wooden bat to, so they can see what it's going to be like when they sign a pro contract. But uh, I wouldn't do it during the season because you might as well use the weapon that you're going to use during the game. Talking with Coach Ryan Polk. Coach, so many people look at you and Skip Burtman and start talking about the involvement of SEC baseball. And, of course, when you look back in you know the 60s, 70s, you start thinking about Southern Cal, of course, Texas, and, of course, Miami. And there were so many big baseball schools at that time, but it really had not grown into the Southeastern Conference. Looking back, it kind of – you know how everything kind of got rolling here, and of course we had some some great teams under Paul Gregory, but getting everything going at Mississippi State, if if you could look back, kind of what got the ball rolling as far as building the huge baseball fan tradition. Well, a lot of things. I mean, guys, when I first got to the Southeastern Conference, we had 12 rules that no other conference uh, acknowledged in the sport of baseball. That's where the emphasis was not in the SEC. They they weren't going to Omaha. They weren't doing very well. And I said to myself, we got 12 great schools, or maybe it was 10 at the time. I'm not sure. I said, why not? We got weather. We got great universities. So I attacked the 12 Rules call them the dirty dozen, and we finally get all of those changed through the presidents and athletic directors, and I was the young buck coming into the league uh, saying, why? That's all I kept saying. Why do we have rules that other sports don't have? I thought it, it was a sleeping giant, and uh, it became that way. We, you know, we had success, and all of a sudden they started hiring great coaches and great assistant coaches, and then we put the field together, the stadium together, and they said, why, why can't we do the same thing? And we got the tarp, and we got the lights, and we got this and that. And so we, we were the kind of the trendsetters, and then all of a sudden everybody started catching up, and it made it a little bit more tougher for us to win as many games as we did early in my career. But at the same time, uh, you know, uh, basically, the Southeastern Conference was a sleeping giant, and it just needed maybe a young buck to come in there and make some changes. One of the big changes, obviously, we made after the 1986 season was the new stadium that really changed the experience for baseball. What went into that? Was that was that your idea? What what happened in getting that stadium off the ground? Well, we had such big crowds at the old stadium and people, there were no reserved seats, so they had to stand in line in the hot sun. And it got to the point where the, that's where the outfield lounge basically started, Charlie, early in the, in the, in the it's about 80, 80, actually 79, 80. People couldn't get a seat. And so they went to the outfield, brought their rigs in there and their trucks, et cetera. But uh, I just, uh, I, bet, I can't even remember. I went through seven athletic directors, but I met with the athletic director. So we got, we got to do something. You know, these fans are so supportive, and we got no, no shared chair backs. We have no, no comfortable environment. And uh, then I think Dr. Zacharias was the president. And then we all had a meeting, and I said, hey, I'm doing pretty good, and our kids are doing good. But if we don't think in terms of getting a stadium here, I got to start looking someplace else. And I think maybe I scared them a little bit. And that probably prompted it because from that point in time, we started raising money. And I'm head coach of Mississippi State. Me and Bulldog Club people, Molly Halbert and others, are going out raising money for a stadium. And I said, my gosh, I got enough things on my table. But I said, I, I made a commitment. We're going to get a stadium. By golly, I'm going to sell some seats. Talking with Coach Ron Polk. Coach, we talked to Ben McDonald last year. And, you know, what a great ambassador for SEC baseball right now. He's on TV a lot. And he was talking about, you know, when, when I was a high school senior, of course, he was a basketball guy as well. And he said, I was really debating hard between coming to Mississippi State and then going to LSU. And, of course, he grew up, you know, right around Baton Rouge and got to play basketball uh, down in Baton Rouge. And so he stayed in, and went to LSU. 
there's always kids that got away. There are always guys that you wanted to come but ended up going somewhere else. Was there ever, ever a time when you're sitting in the dugout and a guy's you're playing against or coaching against, and you sit there and said, man, I wish we'd have got that guy? Well, Ben was one of them. I got to coach him in the Olympics in 88, so I got to be with Ben. And In fact, in my house, in my museum, I got a framed picture of Ben, uh, you know, basically saying – uh, you're you're my second favorite coach. Skip's number one. <laughs> you're my second favorite school. <laughs> LSU's number one. But uh, Ben and I cross paths always. He's such a great guy and a great ambassador for Southeastern Conference baseball, as you say. But uh, yeah, we lose some occasionally. You know, scholarship limitations make it tough. I mean, how many times I'm sitting at the office, uh, at Mississippi State, and coaches are calling me about this catcher that they think is a phenom. He wants to go to Mississippi State. I said, Hey, I've got two catchers coming back. I, I don't. I don't need him and he said well he's going to go somewhere else and beat you i said fine but i you know when you got 11.7 i got two catches coming back why what am i, what am I going to do you talked about coaching the olympic team and i know you've spent a lot number of years working with team usa does it bother you now to see you know baseball kind of falling off the stage in terms of the olympics and things of that nature well they're all pros now i mean that's why I, my last uh gig as the Olymp- uh, USA was 1998. I was seven tours of the national team, two as a head coach, five as assistant, two Olympics. But uh, 1998, we're over in Sicily. We came in third place, and they decided that because uh, we were playing pros. We were playing ex-pros from all other countries, Cuba and even the Netherlands and Italy and, I mean, Puerto Rico. And, and, and our kids were matching up pretty good, but not enough to win medals. And the, and the USA Baseball Federation's funding was relying on how much achievement you have, how many gold medals you win at Intercontinental Cup or Pan American Games or whatever. And so we were the last sport. Baseball was the last sport to be strictly amateur in the Olympics. And in fact, 19, uh, I can't remember, maybe it was 92, 96, I can't remember. Uh, baseball was still using college kids in every other sport, track and gymnastics, everyone were pros. But I was the head coach of the last, basically amateur team in a major international tournament and they went with the pros which means the managers were pros the coaches were pros the player were pros so it cut out the college kids which is unfortunate but that's the way you got to go because it's tough to compete with 18 19 21 year olders 20 year olders against 30 35 year old men that have been in pro baseball but that's what we were facing on a every tournament basis uh, professional players at cuba and Puerto Rico, Dominican, and, you know, we weren't winning. We won an 88 Olympics when Ben was on the team. Ben was one of our rotation guys, mainly because Cuba boycotted the Olympics in 88. We beat Japan for the gold medal, but it's tough uh, competing with Japan and, and, and those type of teams that use basically professional players. If I bought you an old iPhone, would you begin to use it? No, absolutely not. I love my flip-top phone. People say – Boy, you t- you need an iPhone or you need a computer or you need this. I said, why? I have very few distractions. I get a heck of a lot done. And everybody I talk to when they see my typewriter and I don't do email, they are all so jealous. They said, I wish I could do that. I said, why don't you do it? They said, I can't survive. I said, I do. You know, last night, Charlie, I'm sitting beside Coach Polk at the ball game, and, and he's watching the game. And as he's watching the game, and I'm sitting there going, you know what, golly, he needs an iPhone. He needs to put his – he needs an email address. He needs a computer because we have easy access to numbers. The kid – who was the kid last night for Southern Miss that had the 12-pitch at bat? Uh, the center fielder. I can't remember his name. Yeah. Uh, center fielder. So he had, he had a 2-hitter. Had a 12-pitch at bat. 
And I look at Coach Polk and I said, that was a 12-pitch at bat. See, you, you need technology because I've, I'm able to look at stat broadcast and say that's a 12-pitch at bat. He says, but I have you to tell me that. I don't, I don't have to have it. I use a lot of people. <laughs> so, so, but, but some of those people may want you I to get I would love a- to have sometime information, uh, you know, the weather, scores, updates on how kids are doing. But at the same time, uh, if I got it, I'm such the type of person, I'd be on it all the time looking at different things. It'll take me away from the most important thing, getting things done. I'm going to buy you an iPad for your birthday. I don't want it. So uh, Larry Templeton used to bring a computer to my office, my old AD, every year. And I said, get that thing out of here. I have made the argument that professional baseball would be better if they got away from their computers and video screens and just watch guys play. Am I wrong? Uh, no, you're exactly right. Uh, there's so much analytics now. Like, for instance, our hitters, I'm sure, at Mississippi State and Alabama, Auburn, have these four cameras from different angles during the games watching every at-bat. The kid can go home and watch that, and also they can break it down so he just sees his own at-bats. And so all of a sudden he's just looking at his swing and thinking about things, and he gets to the plate the next day and starts thinking about body parts instead of seeing see the ball, hit the ball. Is that what it's all about? No, basically, A to C. see the ball, hit the ball. A to C. A to C. You, you were in our camp. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. I was a great camper. Steve <laughs> Steve Polk was my coach. Yeah, I remember you in camp, yeah, I'm sure. No wonder. That explains a lot about why your career ended if uh, Steve Polk was coaching you. A- absolutely. Do you, uh, okay, so you, you built the house a few years ago. You pretty much turned it into a museum. Well, I haven't. It's not, it's not a, I don't charge admission. I mean, it is a museum. It takes about an hour and a half to go through, yes. But, so you have a, you have an oven in your house that has the paperwork still in it. How long, yeah, the, how long? The refrigerator, too, and the, in the, in the, in the dishwasher, yes, they never been on so yeah. have you ever cooked a meal for yourself never okay let me ask you this question because it's time consuming i have to cook it i have to eat it i have to clean it okay if okay. i go to a restaurant I, I solve those problems so what do you do i mean what i mean i hate to ask you that I question a book when you when you leave when you oh. leave work every day and on your way home do you do you stop at harvey's and go in and eat and read a book or do you run through the drive through at kfc i mean what do you normally do I, well it depends if i'm going to speak somewhere or have something to do but i like to go to a restaurant and I, I, I eat and read a book at the same time. Uh, like in, in the morning, I'll go to McDonald's in the drive-thru and park in the parking lot and be smoking a cigar, drinking coffee, reading the paper, and listening to Fox News. So I'm getting four things done at the same time. My goodness. That's good stuff. <laughs> the original like, multitasker. Just like when I'm walking. Sometimes I, you know, I'm in the Bryan building, and there's a lake right behind us, and I'm walking, and I have my cigar, I got a book, and I'm walking. So three things at the same time. I've been that way all my life. I couldn't survive doing what I did in college baseball because of my uh, lack of coaches with me, and I had to do everything. I had to be a multitasker, and I'm very good at that. What book are you reading right now? I'm reading, I go about three books at a time. I get bored if I just read one book, but it's all nonfiction. I don't read any fiction, except for John Grisham. I get every, every one of John's books because he's a big baseball supporter of Mississippi State. Hey, we appreciate it. We need to do this more often. <laughs> like every day. Absolutely. <laughs> we do this every day in my office, every single day. Hey, appreciate Great you. Great being with you all. Good all to right. see you. Appreciate it, Coach. And that's Coach Ron Paul talking about the days at Mississippi State, Charlie. All right, he's out of here. He shut the door. That was fun. That was a lot of fun. He oh, just got up and left. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's absolutely great to deal with Coach Paul. Always good to talk to him. That conversation brought to you by Country Pleasing Sausage. Country Pleasing 
Check them out at your local grocer. Go to countrypleasing.com. They've got the Country Meat Packers on Highway 49 in Florence. Go by the butcher shop. They have phenomenal stuff for your tailgate. If you're coming up here to grill some things, left field lounge, man. Hey, and that's another thing we need to talk about. Baseball's back. <laughs> Baseball is back. And so should be a lot of fun this weekend. So we'll come back and we'll talk about this weekend, the Kent State Golden Flashes, right after this on Out of Left Field, presented by Farm Bureau. And welcome back. Final segment, Out of Left Field, presented by Farm Bureau. Bart Gregory and Charlie Winfield. We just talked to Coach Ron Polk. Charlie, kind of eye-opening. And I wanted to keep it light. Here's the thing. I grew up around Mississippi State baseball, as did you. And Coach Polk now working in the office with us. I've learned so much about him over the last few months just by having conversations, just about, hey, what do you do? I mean, what, what do you do when you leave here? And I got to thinking about him, and nobody really nobody really knows Coach Polk. You know, everybody will laugh. Hey, he's, he's a funny guy. He's a little peculiar. Hey, but nobody knows Coach Polk. And I tell you what, I, I, I really like to have him back and – talk more baseball as the year goes on. So that was a lot of fun. So, hey, okay, this weekend, Tennessee Tech, they called yesterday, hey, we can't make it. We've got COVID. We have COVID issues. So then you jump on the horn real quick. You realize that Kent State is in the same situation. They were supposed to go to Morgantown this weekend to play West Virginia. They have COVID issues at West Virginia. So everybody links up. Kent State coming to Startville this weekend. will play at 6 o'clock on Friday, 2 o'clock Saturday, noon on Sunday. And, Charlie, all of a sudden, boy, the Bulldogs really upgraded some schedule. Well, they certainly did. And, look, Steve Smith is a very good baseball coach. He will have a good program at Tennessee Tech. It's just not there right now. And so what you did is you upgraded your weekend opponent. This is a team that actually took three games from Tennessee Tech last weekend in Kent State. Phenomenal success within the MAC. And here's the stat that really jumps out at you. In the past 20 years, they've been to the NCAA tournament 10 times. 17 of those 20 years, they have either won the tournament or when I say tournament, the conference tournament, or the regular season championship. They are always right there around the top of that league. And they're going to have a guy probably on Friday, a big right-hander. He's, man, he's what you expect. Another 6'4", guy in Luke Albright. He's a top 100 draft guy. He's going to throw in the mid-90s. And he's got a 12-6 curveball, and he's got a slider that's almost a cutter even. And we'll throw a changeup as well. He is a guy who can mix it up, and he's a guy that scouts like. He is going to be a good Friday test for our hitters again. This is a team that's off to a 3-2 and two start. They opened their season at Virginia Tech. They lost two games at Virginia Tech, okay? So, of course, Virginia Tech went to Miami last week, won two out of three, okay? Then last weekend, they played Tennessee Tech, the team that we were supposed to play. They swept Tennessee Tech last weekend at home, 6-1, 17-5 at 8-1. So this is a 3-2 and two team. They're expected to be a really good team this year. The thing about Kent State, and Charlie, like you just said, they went to the College World Series in 2012. They won that regional at Purdue and Kentucky. They went to Oregon and won two out of three at Oregon, who was a national seed at the time. They got into the College World Series in 2012. They knocked out Florida in the 2012 College World Series. But the thing we haven't talked about is we played Kent State 
back in 2001 in Columbus, Ohio, in the NCAA Regional. We started that regional. We played Delaware. Remember, we played Delaware. And then Kent State upset the number one seed, Ohio State. And so all of a sudden, we didn't have to play Ohio State. We beat Kent State that year. And we went out to, you know, won the regional, went out to Cal State Fullerton and lost to Kirk Sarlos and, and Cal State Fullerton in the Super Regional. That was the last year of Pat McMahon. But here's the thing I remember about that season. John Van Benshoten, that guy hit 31 home runs. He was that big-time, unreal year. Led the NCAA in home runs that year in 2001, and we had to pitch around him. He had a short porch out at Ohio State. We were worried that whole regional. He ended up going to the big leagues and, and pitched you know, three or four years in the big leagues, I think, with the Pirates. As a as a pitcher, he was a dual guy, pitched and hit, and he had that really unreal year in two thousand one. That's the thing I remember. I can't remember what I had for breakfast yesterday morning, but uh, but but I remember that guy from twenty years ago. But this is a program in the Midwest that is a baseball school. Scott Strickland came from there. Danny Hall came from there. They are known as a really good baseball school. And of course, you know Nick Saban went to Kent State. Yeah, and, you know, in terms of looking at this year's team, there's one other guy that jumps out at me that's worth mentioning, and that's a guy they, they'll have in the outfield. We're going to talk about this guy a lot this weekend. His name's Ben Carew, and he is a fifth-year senior. He hit two years ago. He won the batting title in the league, hitting over 400. He's hitting 526 right now in the early part of the year, and he is a guy that gets on base a lot. He's going to lead off most likely. So the two names I think you're going to hear a lot about are Ben Carew, and the pitcher, Albright, Luke Albright. You know what, Bart? We took some grief last week from some of our friends on Braden Oltoff because I know I got the messages. You got the messages walking in the games. You guys have been talking about Braden Oltoff for two months. He can't be that good. Well, I hate to say I was right. We were right on him. I'm telling you, Luke Albright's going to be a good pitcher. Yeah, Albright's going to be really good. 17 strikeouts and five walks and 10 innings of work. He's off to a pretty good start. And Yeah, you mentioned the lineup. I mean, this is a this is a lineup for Kent State. They've only struck out 35 times as a team all year, 35 times in five games. They put the ball in play. And you talk about Carew. He's a guy that's really going to worry you a good bit. All right, should be a great weekend, 6 o'clock on Friday then 2 o'clock on Saturday, noontime on Sunday. If you're a season ticket holder, have the, the season chairbacks. Make sure if you want tickets for this year, get them in. I mean, it's, it's been a quick turnaround for the Bulldog Club. Crazy times. we got real crowds coming up, and so looking forward to kind of getting back to some kind of normalcy at, at the ballpark. And so, yeah, we got all weekend, Charlie and I, SEC Plus. 6 o'clock Friday, 2 o'clock Saturday, noon on Sunday. Appreciate you guys hanging out with us. Great to talk with Coach Ron Polk. We appreciate our sponsors, uh, Farm Bureau, of course, our presenting sponsor, then Country Pleasing Sausage, Country Pleasing, the best product known to man, and then Heartland Catfish. If you're looking for some great fish to fry this weekend or check them out at your local grocer or great restaurants around the south, Heartland Catfish. So for Charlie Winfield, I'm Bart Gregory. Appreciate you guys hanging out with us. We'll be back for Sunday Coffee this coming week, and we'll talk about the first two games between the Dogs and the Flashes of Kent State. You've been listening to Out of Left Field, presented by Farm Bureau.